0: All right, so if you're not, you know, turn to Psalm 84 uh, that Phil read a few minutes ago. Go ahead and turn back there because that's the psalm we're gonna look through. We're doing this series called How Blessed and we're looking at several psalms that have that language. How blessed is the man or how blessed is the one or how blessed are they who God doesn't hide the path of blessing. He wants to reveal it to us. Um, And so we're looking intently at Um, where blessing comes from, according to God, who knows better than us and better than anyone where true blessing is found. So before we dive into the psalm, I wanna ask you a question. Uh, Is God more interested in your happiness or your holiness? Don't worry, it's a trick question. Maybe me saying it's a trick question throws you off a little bit because you might think, duh, of course, our holiness. Well, only if we allow the world to hijack the the word happiness and empty it of its meaning. I mean, how many times have you heard a pastor or other Christians say, you know, God's more interested in your holiness than your happiness, really? It's actually not true. <laughs> it's actually a false dichotomy. Like, it's overly simplistic to say that. It allows the world to hijack this wonderful biblical word, blessed. Like Psalm 1 could be translated, oh, the happinesses of the man who. So let's, you know, let's like take this word back. Okay, it's our word. It's a biblical word. It's a good word. So think about it this way. If your marriage is warm and sweet, if you're satisfied in each other, if you are happily married, how likely is adultery? If you are happy in Jesus, if you are overwhelmed with gratitude to God, so happy with how you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, you know, who... Each of us, by nature, hell-bent sinners, hell-deserving sinners, like if we're happy in Jesus, is that going to affect how we live? Is that going to make us more holy, more like Jesus? Absolutely. Like we'll be more, less prone to unrighteous anger and impatience and grumbling and covetousness. If you're happy in Jesus, covetousness, covetousness, There's some words I have trouble saying. Covetousness is kind of hard to go along with that, right? Just like a thankful heart and grumbling. They just don't go together. So we see this language, how blessed, how blessed, how blessed, over and over again in the Bible. Oftentimes you could translate it, oh, how happy is the one, okay? God is interested in our happiness in the best sense of the word. Okay, it's kind of the point of this series, right? So yes, of course, the world dehydrates the meaning or sucks all the true meaning out of it, or they lead us to look in all the wrong places for happiness, which is why nobody's ultimately satisfied. But this is a good biblical word that we should take back and use, all right? So Psalm 84 has three places where it uses this language, how blessed, and really those three uses kind of form a framework, kind of form the outline of the psalm. We could call them the three beatitudes of Psalm 84. You see them in verse 5, I'm sorry, 4, 5, and 12. So verse 4 is like the summary or the, the kind of, you know, thesis statement of verses 1 to 4. Verse 5 is the heading for verses 5 to 7. And then verse 12 is the summary of verses 8 to 11, or even the summary of the whole psalm. Did you track with that? If you were not looking down, you may not have, but you'll get it anyway as we walk through here, okay? So, psalmist wants to dwell with God and be near God. That's where the blessing is. Nowhere he'd rather be. No good thing does Yahweh withhold from those who walk uprightly. All right, so let's dive in. Point number one, blessed are those at home with God, verses one to four. So this heading here to the choir master, according to the gittith, a musical term, maybe like the melody or something, a psalm of the sons of Korah. You can read about the sons of Korah in 1 Chronicles 26 if you want. Um, they wrote a bunch of psalms, actually. Psalms 42 to 49 come from the sons of Korah, and so do Psalms 85 87, 88, in addition to 84, all right? So how lovely or how dear, how beloved is your dwelling place, O Yahweh of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of Yahweh. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Yahweh of hosts, my king and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. So, the dwelling place of of Yahweh, Yahweh of hosts, that's the term that refers to him being the commander of the armies of heaven and earth. This transcendent, like beyond our wildest imagination, he's so great and powerful and awesome. His dwelling place is dear, it is beloved, it is lovely, it is the place to be. Blessed are those who dwell in his house. So the psalmist longs and faints. It's so great, that's where he wants to be. So he longs and faints for Yahweh's courts. Longing is all over this psalm. His heart, his flesh cry out to the living God. So in verse two there, my flesh sing for joy, Um, It's possible, most likely, that term should be translated cry out, like a loud cry. Sometimes it could be joyful, but not necessarily. And so if you look at the language there, my soul longs and faints, my heart and flesh cry out. Okay, it's longing. The joy doesn't really come in yet. This is more the longing in focus um, in verse two. So his heart and flesh cry out to the living God. Sounds a lot like another psalm by the sons of Korah. And Russell read it earlier, read from it earlier. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for flowing streams, my so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And then he's struggling. His soul is downcast because of his circumstances. He's separated from, you know, The temple and being able to worship God with the people of God. So he preaches to himself. You know, he didn't have a quiet time that morning, he had a loud time that morning. He's preaching to himself I am going to appraise God again. He's my salvation, He's my hope. This is not hopeless. So then he prays in Psalm 43, which is actually, they're really kind of one psalm together. He prays in Psalm 43, 3, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So do you see the longing of this son of Korah? He wants to be near God. That's his greatest desire. So we see that this blessedness in Psalm 84, blessed are those who dwell in your house, it's aspirational. He's longing for it. Which is why it's good to remember that this psalm is a song That's meant to be sung. Do you see the heading? To the choir master. Like, okay, so what? We usually just kind of blow right by that. What's the point? Well, ESV Study Bible says it well in the little note. It says, the purpose of singing this psalm, I think we have a quote there. Do you have it? Yes, no? There we go. The purpose of singing this psalm is to cultivate that delight, to open the eyes and hearts of God's people to this Daggering privilege of being a welcome guest in God's own house and to write deep into their souls the conviction that wickedness offers no reward that can even remotely compare to the joy and pleasure of God's house. So do you see how much we need this? How much we need to sing this song? Psalm 84. Has worship music, whether on a Sunday or in the car or you know, at home, has worship music ever, ever breathed life into your soul, reminding you of what's true, helping you like, really know and experience the truth, the grace that's yours in Christ? Has that ever happened to anybody? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So it happened to me a little over a week ago Friday We had that ends-of-the-earth worship night, and I had a lot going on. And I was honestly not looking forward to, sorry, those of you that were leading that night. I was not looking forward to coming. I thought what I really needed was to get more done. No, that's not what I needed. And thankfully, you know, I needed to be here. I'm like the pastor. I should be here, right? My Johnny was singing up here as well. So I came in, heart not in the right place, and was very quickly lifted out of that and refreshed and renewed and rebuked, frankly, and like so encouraged with the truths of the gospel that we were singing. So I didn't need to get more done. I needed to be reminded of the gospel and the grace and love and mercy of my great Savior. And I was reoriented and was so blessed. And then I could happily go about my business. I need this regularly. I'm sure you need this regularly. We're so blessed to have not only the weekly reminder as we gather together like this, but it's we live in a day and age when so much excellent worship music is accessible just at the tap of a button that can remind us and awaken our sleepy souls and call us back to how blessed it is to be near to God and to worship him. So just one little recommendation. Shane and Shane is a great band and they have a song on Psalm 84. So just type in Shane and Shane, Psalm 84. Listen to that one. If that one doesn't you know, warm your cold soul. Um, Well, you might need to try something else, but it's a good one. They also have a song on Psalm 42 as well. Also recommend that one. So the psalmist is longing to be with God in his house, and even singing this song and leading others to sing this song awakens their hearts to be reminded of all the sweetness, the blessing, the joy that there is in God's presence. The blessed place, the happy place. He's homesick for the house of God. That's his true home. Wherever God is, that's where he wants to be. So the first beatitude of Psalm 84 is, happy are those whose home is with God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. So will he welcome us? into his house? Well, look at verse 3. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Yahweh of hosts, my king and my God. What's the point of that? Why is that in there? Well, the temple was open, right? So birds would have been able to come in and make nests and whatever. Look at how the birds find a welcome and a home in Yahweh's house. Well... How about the words of Jesus in Matthew 10? You are of more value than many sparrows. So if he's welcomed them, if they find a home, will he not welcome us? God is the most hospitable host. His hospitable heart is wide open to welcome us into his dwelling place, into his home, and into his heart. So the psalmist could have used temple language throughout, but he speaks even more often about the dwelling, the house of God. So yeah, there's overlap there, but the point is, is God is dwelling with his people. He wants to dwell with his people. He wants his people to dwell with him. So do you think of God as hospitable? He's the ultimate host, the ultimate welcomer, You know, when he made the garden, it was perfectly hospitable for the people that he made in his image, right? But sadly, because of our sin, the neighborhood went to pot, right? Like, (laughs) we're all cosmic thieves and vandals, peacebreakers and troublemakers. That's what we do to this world. So he could have just, you know, balled us up and thrown us in the cosmic trash bin. We've taken advantage of his kindness and stolen from him and vandalized his house. So picture the worst urban blight you've ever seen. That's just a pointer, a parable of what we've all done to God's dwelling place that he welcomed us into. So what do we deserve? (laughs) I mean, it's a good thing he's not a one strike and you're out type of host. He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And over and over again, he brings his people out of a mess, out of their sin, out of slavery in Egypt to bring them in to relationship with him, to bring them home. Like Deuteronomy 6.23, he brought us out from there, Egypt, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to our fathers. Or think about Psalm 23. The imagery moves from that of shepherd and sheep to host and guest. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. So many passages that speak of God's rich welcome and the way that he hosts his people. So no wonder when the Son of God came to earth, again, thinking of the hospitality of God, what's happening at the incarnation? God moves into the bad neighborhood. (laughs) He came to seek and save the lost. Why? To welcome us in, to welcome us home, to deal with our sin, everything that had separated us from God. Shortly before his death, Jesus eats with his disciples. He's the host of that meal, right? And he puts on the basin, or he he puts on the towel, and washes their feet, humbly serving them. Amazing host heart, humble host heart of God, hospitable host heart of God. One more passage on this, well, actually two. Um, Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 12, remember, that you were at that time separated from Christ. This is before you were welcomed in, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So if you're in Christ, you belong, you have a home. If you're a Christian, you have received the ultimate welcome. Paul writes in Romans 15, 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So his dwelling place is lovely. Blessed are those who dwell in his house. And we don't have to cower in the corner wondering if he'll have us. His hospitable heart Is wide open to us, certainly to his people. And if any of you here have not yet come home, just look at the outstretched arms of the Lord Jesus dying for you, for your sin, so that you could come in, so that you could belong, so that you could have your sins dealt with and forgiven and cleansed, and you could have a father adopted into his family and be beloved and belong forever. Now, we have to do some interpretation work here. So what is the dwelling place of God for us today? We don't go to the temple like they did. We go to church, okay? So certainly we meet with God here. God's not limited to a building, right? The church is the people. So what is the dwelling place of God for us today? what are we saying is lovely? (laughs) Well, first off, the true temple is the Lord Jesus himself. He came down to welcome us in, right? So certainly how dear, how lovely, how beloved is the dwelling place of God? Jesus himself, he lived and died to welcome us in. And now we are actually the dwelling place of God. not the building, but the people. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, do you not know that you, and that's plural, not singular, you, the church, the body of Christ, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. So um, the British preacher Charles Spurgeon said once that the church is the dearest place on earth. Now, I know that's not always our experience, is it? (laughs) But it should be. And we can pray that that would be the case. And sometimes we get glimpses of it, and we taste it, and it's sweet. And I've seen it over and over again, the way that this body has loved on needy members, and it's just been beautiful and sweet. So we ought to be the dearest Place on earth, how lovely is your dwelling place? The gospel cultivate and it cultivates an environment, a people that is dear and precious and beautiful and lovely. And then you want to be together with God's people, worshiping God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those at home with God through Christ and now with his family in the church. So this is actual, we've tasted it. It's also aspirational, Lord, make it so. We've t- t- tasted this, we want more of it, yes? Anybody want more of this? Do you want the church to be a lo- the lovely dwelling place of God where we want to be together and other people come in and go, whoa, God must be among you. This is, I've never seen anything like this before. But what about when you're not there? When you're not there? (laughs) Well, there's even blessing on the road to dwelling with God. Point number two, blessed are the Christian pilgrims, verses five to seven. So this beatitude, verse five, is a heading over the next few verses, five to seven, So certainly blessedness is there when we're at our destination with God, praising him. But blessedness is also found on the journey as we are Christian pilgrims. So look at verse five with me. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion, the city of God. As they go through the valley of Baca, Okay, we're not sure if that was an actual place or if it actually should be translated the Valley of Weeping, or it could actually also refer to balsam trees. Um, But the point is is that balsam trees grow in arid places. So whatever the translation is, the bottom line is clear. They go through this dry desert-like valley and they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. To appear before God in Zion was to keep the pilgrim feasts, right? They would, they would pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts and the festivals. So the picture here is this pilgrim journey um, through an arid country in order to get to God in Zion and worship him at the temple, pilgrim path though is through this arid, inhospitable territory. But God's grace can turn a desert into an oasis. So these pilgrims can be strengthened despite the suffering, despite the trials en route to meeting with God. So, somewhere in my reading this past week, I read something like this If you can't be in the temple, the temple can be in you. That's a good way of summarizing what the psalmist is saying here. Even if you're absent from the people of God in the temple, you can experience the presence of God. Or Derek Kidner writes it this way He says, If he can't be at Zion, he can be with God. If he can't enjoy sweetness, Uh, Verse 1, how lovely is your dwelling place? He can find strength in route. So blessed are the Christian pilgrims, basically. Point number two, the arid places can be made into springs. God is an expert at this, right? (laughs) I mean, he can make water come out of a rock. Psalm 107.35 says, God turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. And then that thought that follows in Psalm 84 is parallel. They go from strength to strength. So what would seem to weaken you and wear you out can be the path on which you are encouraged and you grow in strength. So Alec Motier says this, the the nearer the goal, the stronger its pull. So that the pilgrims, so far from flagging, you know, wearing out, Losing their zeal, press on more eagerly than at the start. So the prize, the destination, empowers the plodding on. Sounds like Philippians 3, doesn't it? Paul knew that the surpassing worth of his life was knowing Christ. He had counted everything as loss in view of gaining Christ, knowing Christ. And then in verse 12, it says this, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And then he presses on and speaks of the ultimate destination, dwelling with God in heaven forever. Our citizenship is in heaven, verse 20, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So happy are the pilgrims. Philippians is full of joy. Happy are the pilgrims whose strength comes from God. By God's grace, through faith, the weak become strong. The destination, the prize, shapes and empowers the journey on the path. So you can see how this is the case if we kind of flip it upside down. You know that if you're hopeless, that hopelessness trickles back and makes the path weary and you don't even want to put another, one foot in front of the other. You don't want to even get out of bed. But if you have hope, it actually puts a spring in your step, right? I mean, you know this, even if it's something as simple as, like, you're going to have a, go to a concert, or there's something going on on the weekend that you're really excited about and looking forward to, Friday's a little easier, isn't it? Like, you might have the same slog at work, but if that thing is coming Friday night or Saturday, it's easier to endure, right? Right? hope. It's the power of hope. So think about it this way. Again, happy are the pilgrims because the destination is coming, and it changes the path. It strengthens you on the path. So imagine that you're a prisoner of war in, let's say, 1941, 1942, and you're part of the forced labor gang that was building the Burma Railroad, Railway, Okay, do you know like Bridge Over River Kwai, if you've ever seen that or read about that? So there were like 60,000 Allied troops, among others, who were forced under horrific conditions to build this railway. And perhaps as many as 16,000 died. That's like one in four ish. So it was like a death march. Imagine having heard how bad this situation is, and then getting thrown into it, experiencing it. When you're likely to die, you're certainly going to suffer in excruciating ways. And as the days turn into weeks, turn into months, what would happen? Hope would fade, and you might just want to die. Now, contrast that with, imagine yourself again, World War II POW in a remote Japanese labor camp Having weathered some terrible treatment for a significant period of time, anybody read the book unbroken? <laughs> that would be an example. If not, sorry, just let that pass or go read that book later you'll thank me. Um, and then you know you suffered horrific treatment, but then all of a sudden you see the guards are seeming to you know get a little nervous and trying to figure out what's going on. they're agitated and over a period of days, it seems like things are getting worse for them, and then finally they just flee. And you find out that the war has taken its decisive turn, and you're about to be free. Now, if you had a terrible march through some brutal terrain in order to be evacuated, how would you be feeling? As opposed to the death march, you know, conscripted labor. The destination changes the path, right? So if we walk by faith as Christian pilgrims, listen to 2 Corinthians 4, so we do not lose heart. In fact, to use the language of Psalm 84, we can go from strength to strength. Though our outer self is wasting away, Shirley says, it's okay. I'm okay. Her inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. So the blessedness of the presence of Yahweh, the anticipated hope of being with God forever, we are secure, our future is secure, it works backwards to strengthen and sweeten the journey, strengthening us. We go from strength to strength, even through barren, arid wilderness country. So blessed are the Christian pilgrims who walk by faith and not by sight. Now, as we continue on here in Psalm 84, we hit a prayer in verse eight. And this might be the most confusing part, like how in the world does eight to 10 fit into the context? So look at point number three, blessed bless the anointed one. So, verse 8 says this, O Yahweh, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. So, the psalmist is praying. He asks God to hear his prayer. Okay. But then, verse 9 says, Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. What in the world does that mean? Who's the anointed? Well, for the psalmist, it was the reference to the king the king would have been referred to as obviously the anointed one, the Messiah, the king, but also the shield of the kingdom. The king was their protection personified, the representative. So the psalmist's prayer is, please, O God, look upon your king, our shield, and bless him. Look on the face of your anointed with your favor. Why would he pray that? What does that have to do with the context? Well, if you have no king and there's no protection, then guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to end up in exile pretty quick, under the thumb of a foreign power. And for God's people in the Old Testament, when they were in exile, they had no king, they had no temple, they couldn't worship God freely. Their freedom to gather to worship God at the temple was taken away. So you can see why the psalmist would pray like this, precisely because worshiping God in His temple together was so precious to him and to the people of God. That's it's a, it's the dearest place on earth, right? So their hope was in the anointed one. Well, what about for us? Roughly three millennia later, for us, the answer of this prayer is everything. It's why this psalm is ours, and it's why this psalm can be so sweet to us. The Lord Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, is our king. He is why we can enjoy the hospitality of God, the presence of God, precisely because the Father looked on the sacrifice of his anointed one, the Messiah, in our place for our sins to bring us in, to bring us home, That's why all of this blessing can be ours, right? We're all exiled as a result of the fall. We all live east of Eden in the wilderness of this fallen sinful world. We're all hopeless without God. But again, because of the king who became a servant and suffered even to the point of death on a cross, we can dwell with god god dwells with us in us because of the work of christ god has looked on the face of his anointed and crucified son and now he looks on all who trust in jesus and blesses them and welcomes them in we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in christ in christ all the promises of god are yes they are ours So we have a home with God. God dwells with us, and we are on our way home. And we can go from strength to strength as each day brings us closer to our treasure. What is most precious to us? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So do you see why we need to sing this song? Why we need to be reminded of what's true and what matters? because we need to be reminded where the best place in the whole world is. Where's that? Last point, point number four, verses 10 to 12. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Why? Because Yahweh God is a sun and shield. He's a son. All that's outgoing and positive. I mean, what do we get from the sun? Everything. Light, heat, life. Everything grows as a result. And then a shield. He's our protector. So Yahweh bestows favor and honor. You could translate that gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So this is true. Is there any place you'd rather be? If there's any place we'd rather be, we should repent. (laughs) But if there's no place you'd rather be, then sing with me, sing with the psalmist here. Let's sing, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Listen, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? I'd rather stand at the threshold. Just, Just let me stand at the threshold be a doorkeeper, just be a servant, then dwell in the lap of luxury and have the respect and admiration of the world, right? But like, right? Like, don't we need to remind ourselves of that? Of where the best place really is? Of where the blessing really is? We need to remind ourselves of that because we go after the wrong things all the time. Would you rather have one day with God or 150 years of perfect health and wealth and success and respect on the earth, and then hell. Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. We've got to sing this until we believe it with all our heart. Yahweh is a sun and a shield. He's the source of everything good for us. He is our true protection. If God is for us, who can be against us? What is the worst that cancer can do? Can kill us. Okay, to die is gain. What's the worst that Putin can do? What's the worst that inflation can do? Yahweh gives the good stuff and cancer and Putin and all the you know international drama and inflation can't take that blessing away from us no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly he bestows grace and glory favor and honor it's our sins that keep good from us that's what we ought to fear the most <laughs> is our sin jeremiah 525 your sins have kept good from you but as we looked at a few weeks ago, Psalm 3410, those who seek Yahweh lack no good thing. So Psalm 162, I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. God is our sumum bonum, our supreme, our greatest good, the chief, the highest good, the ultimate thing in our lives, the singular most ultimate end So I love this quote by Jonathan Edwards in The Christian Pilgrim. It's a great little article. I encourage you to read the whole thing. But he wrote this, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature, and the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children of the company of earthly friends are but shadows but God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Therefore, it becomes us to spend this life only as a journey towards heaven. Happy are the Christian pilgrims as it becomes us to make the seeking of our highest end and proper good the whole work of our lives to which we should, sub- should subordinate all other concerns of life. Why should we labor for it or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but willingly gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Philippians 4.11, Paul writes, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He's in prison, but he's happy in Jesus. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I've got Jesus. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And then in verse 19, he gives this promise Amazing promise to the Philippians and to us. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So verse 12 of Psalm 84 sums it all up. Oh, Yahweh of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Blessed is the one who trusts in you. Is God more interested in our happiness or our holiness? False dichotomy. When our happiness is in God... We will not want to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Happiness in God is the path to holiness. Psalm 65 four: blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Let's pray. O oh God whom have we in heaven but you and please make it so that there is nothing on earth that we ultimately desire besides you our flesh and our heart may fail but you O oh God are the strength of our heart and our portion forever those who are far from you shall perish you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you but for me, may it be the case for, for each of us in this room, it is good to be near God. May we make you, Lord God, our refuge. In Jesus' name, amen.